The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about politics with Sherrod Brown. Of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was re-elected in 2018 when he won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. We'll ask him how he did that and how Joe Biden has learned the lessons from that campaign. Also, we'll talk about disputed elections with historian Eric Foner. Maybe the election next week will have a big enough vote for Biden so that it can't be challenged in court. Maybe the Republicans won't dispute the outcome, but maybe they will. We've had other disputed elections in our history. Of course, there was the Supreme Court stopping the count in Florida in 2000. And there was another one, much less well-known, the election of 1876. Eric Foner will explain. First up today, Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren talk about our malfunctioning democracy, diagnosing what's gone wrong and repairing it. That's the subject of their new podcast for the nation. It's called System Check, and it premieres this week, Friday, at thenation.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Melissa Harris-Perry is the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair and Professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Wake Forest University. She's also in the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. She's founder and president of the Anna Julia Cooper Center and a longtime columnist and contributor at The Nation. She's also written regular columns for Essence and, of course, from 2012 to 2016, she hosted the award-winning TV show, Melissa Harris-Perry, Weekend Mornings on MSNBC. We still miss it. Melissa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words. <laughs> and her co-host on the System Check podcast is Dorian Warren. He's president of Community Change and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. He taught for over a decade at the University of Chicago and at Columbia where he was co-director of Columbia's Institute on Labor Law and Policy. He also worked at MSNBC, where he was a contributor and host. He's appeared regularly as a commentator all over the place, NBC, CNN, BET, BBC, NPR. He's also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation, where he also serves on the magazine's editorial board. Dorian Warren, welcome. Thanks so much, John, for having us. Well, we're talking the week before 
election day. It's Tuesday. It's a scary time. It's hard to think about anything other than beating Trump. But you think Trump is not the only problem in our politics and our world. There's a problem with the system. And defeating Trump by itself isn't going to fix that. And that's what your new podcast, System Check, is about. Please explain. So I would say we're even more contrarian than that, John. I was looking at Dorian when you said uh, that we're a week out from Election Day, and Dorian and I have been talking about the fact that we probably shouldn't even call it Election Day anymore. Election season, because we might not know the results on election night as the media calls it versus when votes are counted and certified. So we've been saying election season and we might have a good sense on on election night. We might not. We might know a couple of days later. We might not. This might be 2000 all over again, but even worse. So, um, yes, it is it is both scary, but I'm actually hopeful (laughs) about the election outcomes, assuming all the votes are counted. So that's so interesting because um, I think I'd say I both agree with Dorian that this is an election season, in part because we've already had 60 million plus, um, you know, Americans cast their vote. Um, But I think I would disagree that I think that this might be uh, the year 2000. I've been much more inclined to think that if we end up with irregularities and if we end up with a season of vote counting in addition to vote casting, that it may be more like um, 1876 than like 2000. Um, And I think that's part of what we've been trying to play around with is, uh, John, when we are thinking about the system questions and the system problems, and sometimes hopefully also the system fixes, the, the one word I think that has been used most often in 2020 to describe all kinds of different things that just grates on my ears is the word unprecedented. Um, And it's not to say that some things aren't unprecedented, but dang, Dorian and I keep finding a lot of precedent that in fact exists for so many of the things that we find now to be disruptive and disconcerting. But in fact, they do have some historical backstory. Can we talk for a minute about white men? Uh, I am a white man, so, you know, I have standing. (laughs) I think you guys have standing too. You know, the number one problem in our elections has been white men. The latest poll from Pew Research has Trump leading Biden among white men by 53 to 41. Among older white men, even more are for Trump. White women seem to be split about 50-50. People of color and young people are overwhelmingly for Biden. This divide is nothing new. White men have been supporting the Republicans for decades. Uh, But the gender gap is much bigger this year than ever before, especially among uh, whites. And of course, white men are a smaller proportion of the total population every year. White men right now are something like 30% of the American population, but they're more likely to vote uh, than people of color. And the problem with the system here is that People of color don't register to vote and don't turn out to vote as often as older white men and white men in general. Republicans, of course, say this is a problem of personal responsibility. If people of color don't vote, that's their problem. How do you see it? 
Well, <laughs> I so wish that we were on video and that I had my digital whiteboard because <laughs> I would whip, because I, this is like my, my favorite data are um, the, the general election turnout data. And if we pretended the world just for a moment was very binary, that it existed only as white men, white women, black men, and black women, just those four, I totally recognize that our electorate is not that simple. But if you look at what we know about any individual's likelihood to vote, we know that you can predict the likelihood of any given individual to vote most closely by knowing three things. What's their income? What's their level of completed education? And how partisan are they? And, and by partisan, I don't mean negatively. I just mean, do they feel strongly attached to a political party? And as you might expect, if you feel strongly attached to a political party, if you earn more income and if you have more formal education, then you are individually more likely to vote. Okay, but then black people do this amazing thing, which is although that's true individually, black folks vote at a rate much higher than would otherwise be expected given their education and income. So you can look particularly at black women who all the way up through 2004 were tracking just behind white men, right? So think about how much more education and income white men have, but black women would be within two percentage points turnout difference. And then in 2008 and in 2012, when Michelle Obama's husband ran for president, and ran for re-election, Black women voted in 08 and 2012 as though they were in a country where it was mandatory to vote. They voted for Barack Obama as though it were illegal not to. The turnout for Black women in those two elections hit 75%. Okay, one more. And here's the wildest part. In that same election cycle from 08 to 2012, white men's voting turnout descends. And it drops so much that by the time we get to the re-election of President Obama, white men are voting at the same rate as black men who are subject to the most egregious felon disenfranchisement and other laws that stand in the way of them being able to cast a vote. Guess what happens in 2016? Black men and black women return to historic norms. There's not some big drop off. It's a return to historic norms and white men find a reason to go back to the polls. And white men's voter turnout ascends dramatically in 2016. So I think the question of what turnout looks like depends a lot on, and this is just at the presidential level and just in presidential election years, certainly depends a lot on who the candidates are, what their messaging is, how the parties are mobilizing their base, and how connected voters feel to the person for whom they are voting. And one thing seems pretty clear, there was a very strong coalition of white men and white women who supported President Trump. And not only just sort of they voted for him, but there was a new, there was a, a surge and a turnout in that vote in 2016. I, I would add one other aspect to this, to Melissa's digital whiteboard, which he made verbal for us. And that is, if you if we talk about white men, I think we have to talk about the failure of the Democratic Party. And what I mean by that is, um, I'm going back to my old union organizing days. We always, when I was a union organizer for just a couple of years, was organizing hotel workers, and then I did research on how did different demographic groups vote in union elections. And one thing we knew was that white men 
were the most likely to vote no for the union. And who was most likely to vote yes? Black women. And then everyone else is basically in between. Now, those aren't sta- that's not a static fact. <laughs> because what the process in between that is called organizing. And it involves, so I'm going to reference here my friend and colleague um, who runs a competitor organization, um, George Gale from People's Action. He has been doing for the last four years this very fascinating deep listening set of conversations, particularly with white rural voters. And guess what? If you talk to white people and white men in particular, and you keep talking to them, they change their minds and they change their behavior. And so what I mean by this is we have to talk about the Democratic Party. When you abandon local party structures, when you don't invest in building organization, when you don't invest and you just assume that you can do slick commercials two weeks before an election and that's going to work, then you're going to get <laughs> results where you lose. As opposed to, and I just, I just want to say in 2020, the other interesting thing for me from where I sit, there is an entirely new landscape of progressive infrastructure that has been built since 2016 and especially this year in a pandemic, um, particularly in terms of digital organizing. And if you just look in the streets in terms of the largest social movement in American history led by Black Lives Matter, there is something, this is potentially a renewal of civic engagement because a lot of us said, well, the hell with the party. <laughs> They're not going to do it. We're going to have to do this ourselves and organize ourselves and recruit new people to the fight. And so I do think that is the strategy when talking about just white Americans generally, but particularly white men. Um, they're not static. They just, they're left up for grabs and the Republican Party under Trumpism has come in and grabbed them and held them very tightly. So organize, I'm very hopeful <laughs> in terms of the, the election outcome. By the way, this is not simply, the last thing I'll say on this is not simply a story. And I know the pundits are lining up already to say, oh, this was COVID election or this is a, a bad economy election. This has been years in the making. And we have some data points along the way. 2018 midterms, the highest turnout in, a, in since what, 1908, I think. There is something happening. There is that we're going to see the results of come election week. <laughs> Well, I, I should, I, I remember now I have to issue a disclaimer that I'm not talking about all white men. I know I'm going to get a lot of mail saying millions of white men vote, you know, for the Democrats, especially in California and Massachusetts and New York. And yes, yes, this is, this is true. I want to take a step back and, and look at the kind of the larger logic behind your idea of a, the system check. Your key argument here is that the systems that oppress people in this country in many cases are not broken or malfunctioning. You say in many cases they're operating just the way they were intended to work. That's a radical claim, so please please explain it. Yeah, let me start this one by talking about this concept that I love from the great Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Torres in their book, The Miner's Canary. The miners' canary, as you might know, um, miners would carry little canaries down to the coal mines because they had tiny lungs. And so when there were toxic gases, the canaries would get sick and possibly die. The miners knew to get out. They were the alarm bell to the safety and the functioning of the mine. And there are lots of miners' canaries in American politics. And black people are one. <laughs> if you want to understand what is the health of our election system, just look at 
what's happening with voting and black folks. There are lots of other minors canaries, but children, poor people. Exactly. Exactly. So just to take one example of um, a system design, a system design for unfreedom and for inequality, take felony disenfranchisement laws. Those came about in response to reconstruction after the end of the civil war as a way to disenfranchise newly enfranchised black men. Because remember, black women didn't get the right to vote, not in 1920, but really in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. But those laws have been on the books for a long time. And so even with the great accomplishment of the 65 Voting Rights Act that really made America a democracy for the first time, those felony disenfranchisement laws were still on the books. And so I raised that example to say there were intentional system design to exclude and disenfranchise folks, but there are often unintended consequences (laughs) to even intentional designs. And one of those unintentional consequences is now we still have several states, most notable Florida, where there was a referendum in 2016 to restore the right to vote for returning citizens, those who had served their time. And what came after in the last couple of years? Well, a new poll tax, basically saying, well, if those returning citizens haven't paid certain fines related to their sentences, they are ineligible to vote. That's a combination of an intentional design around exclusion, as well as an unintended consequence of these Jim Crow era laws still being on the books and still taking till 2020 to eradicate. And I I would just add to Dorian's point, because I think he's really the one who has been pushing around this. We can't just call it broken. We really have to think about what is the purpose of the design of the systems. And even if we think about um, voting or enfranchisement in the broadest sense, this notion of self-governance, we must remember that, you know, and I'm mostly doing this because Amy Coney Barrett says we have to all be originalists now. So if we go back to some (laughs) original intent, the founders were pretty suspicious of this idea of self-governance, even as they were instantiating it, right? So even as they're making this broad claim about the capacity and ability of um, non, uh, of citizens who aren't born into royalty to make decisions about themselves and um, the use of the funds of the, of the uh, public, they're also quite nervous about it. They're never quite certain that they really want everyone to vote, that they really want all the voices. They are as nervous about majority rule um, as they are about um, minority, um, uh, uh, sort of, you know, a single uh, monarch controlling everything. So I think we have to remember that even at its most originalist core, there is always an American voting system that is pushing out rather than um, than pulling in. One last thing about you two. You, you seem to get along pretty well. Have you ever worked together uh, on a project before System Check? How, how did you meet? Oh, oh. well, now we're going to tell on ourselves. Um, well, we met when, old friends. Yeah, for you know, uh, we're drinking age friends. We're we've known each other for about twenty one years. We met when we were both grad students. Melissa was finishing up her PhD. I was just starting mine, and um, we're I don't know. We quickly just shared sensibilities and <laughs> outlooks and skepticism <laughs> of all things, yes. and um, 
over the years, of course, uh, Melissa was very generous and invited me onto her show, Melissa Harris Perry on MSNBC, um, and was very supportive when I had a little spinoff of that show. But more important, we have been arguing together and against each other, <laughs> learning from each other. Um, and just, you know, Melissa is the person I can go to for sanity and soberness around our political situation, but also she will always get me to think about something that I didn't think of. So it's her incredible, brilliant mind and skepticism about, hey, empirically, what is, where are you getting that from? <laughs> it's the social scientist in her, um, but also just her deep sense of values around freedom and social justice that has allowed us to be friends for many, many, many years. Yeah, we've been we've been great friends. He's the little brother, um, but he's the little brother who is the community organizer. And let me tell you that um, uh, one of the things we've often done for each other over the years is we have been one another's plus one when our um, <laughs> yes. significant other was not available for one reason or another. And a community organizer is the best plus one you will ever have. Because even if you don't have tickets to the event, the community organizer knows how to talk to the doorman or the cleaning lady or some <laughs> other laborer who actually has like the keys to the kingdom. Uh, so we have a great time together. We've we've been good friends for a long time. And this is, um, as much as we've been talking to each other for 21 years, this is a really unique opportunity for us to um, share and expand these conversations with, with a much broader audience. Mm -hmm. Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren, their new podcast is System Check, Checking the Systems That Hold Us Back. It premieres Friday, October 30th, just in time to make sense of the election. New episodes every Friday. You can listen at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Melissa and Dorian, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate you having us on. Yes, thank you, John. Talking politics and history with Sherrod Brown. Of course, Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018. He won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. Now he's got a new book out in paperback. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Sherrod Brown, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back on your show. Thank you. Thanks for speaking out as a progressive. Well, at the end of Desk 88, you talk about your own re-election in 2018. And let's say it again, you won by seven points in a state Hillary had lost by eight points just two years earlier. We have an important question about that. What are the lessons for Joe Biden in Ohio in 2020 from the experiences of Hillary in 2016 and you in 2018? Well, first of all, elections elections are only about whose side are you on. And Trump came to Ohio in 16 and convinced enough voters, uh, stunningly in many ways, enough voters that um, he was on their side. And he put out a phony populism that more and more people understand, more and more people are on to. Uh, and I, I, Biden, Biden needs to do what he's mostly doing, and that is talk about the dignity of work run a campaign and promise to run a government through the eyes of workers, make that contrast of the dignity of work with 
with Trump's betrayal of workers, where Trump has opposed the minimum wage, taken away overtime for 100,000 Ohio workers, uh, taken away the unemployment benefit, $600 a week that kept hundreds of thousands of Ohioans out of poverty. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans lost their unemployment August 1st as they did elsewhere in the country. How are they gonna pay? They can't find jobs in this economy. How are they gonna pay their, their, their rent or their mortgage? How are they gonna pay their gas bill? How are they gonna provide food for their kids when they lost that $600 a week that, that really kept them out of poverty? So because elections are about contrast and Biden has been a friend of workers and Trump has betrayed them, I, I, there are, and there are way more examples than that. That's how to make that contrast with Trump. And I think you'll see enough of the Trump 16 voters move away from him towards Biden because of that. And I imagine Joe Biden knows all about how you won in 2018 after Hillary lost in 2016. Well, Biden, Biden is a smart guy and Biden's campaign has looked a lot at Ohio. And I, I think you can see in Biden, I mean, Biden at the Democratic Convention, Joe and the vice president, a number of others use the word dignity, dignity of work, the human dignity, the way Dr. King did. I mean, the, the term dignity of work is is, is hardly my invention. Uh, it was um, Pope Leo is my first coming upon that term, who was the labor pope at the turn of the last century. And, and then Dr. King used the term dignity of work repeatedly. And King King understood uh, the, the, the overlap of, of civil rights and workers and labor rights. And I mean, look where he was when he was assassinated. He was in Memphis fighting for the most, some of the most um, oppressed workers uh, in the country, workers almost entirely black or maybe all black, not paid well, few benefits, terrible working conditions. A couple of workers had been killed. I don't remember precisely, but but I think killed by a garbage compactor only in the few weeks leading up to the strike. Uh, so Dr. King understood dignity of work. And as, I mean, well, interestingly, back, um, your, your, your U.S. Senator, Kamala Harris, soon after she was in office, she and I were sitting on the Senate floor one day after the Dr. King holiday. And we were talking about our speeches and Dr. King holidays and our, uh, she, I think in LA, I'm not sure. And I was in Cleveland and, and we were sitting on the floor and she said in the Senate and she, we're talking, she said, what'd you talk about? I talked about the dignity of work and I was quoting King and, and about a week later, she walks up to me, she hands me a book that's, the name of the book was All Work Has Dignity and or All Labor Has Dignity. I think it was All Labor Has Dignity. It was a compilation of King's speeches to unions and to worker groups um, in the last 10 years of his life. And King, in the last years of his life, he was more and more intertwined with the labor movement much of the labor movement very supportive, not all the labor movement. They would be now, but uh, times have changed in some ways for the better. Well, the um, the new paperback of your book, Desk 88, has an afterword. Seems like it was written last week. It takes up the question of what the way you put it is when the stars next align for progressives to be in power in Washington. And that may well happen on January 20th, the polls say. Biden is likely to win the election. The Democrats will take control of the Senate. Uh, so let us assume Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th and a new Democratic Senate is seated. What are your priorities for that day, that week, that month? Well, the priorities, I think, of mainstream Democrats, and that's from Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and me and Joe Biden and, and uh, you know Kamala Harris and a number of others is, we need, we need to move quickly. 
Uh, we need to do things that will give people benefits immediately, such as minimum wage, allowing Medicare buy-in at 55, uh, the giving unions the right to organize. We need, we need to do, we need to expand democracy. And that means the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It means ending the redistricting abuses. It means giving people, restoring democracy that much of it has been compromised. Um, but I, I, I think of it in this way, that, that we, that there are three great moral issues of our times. Climate change that your state has been so afflicted with, not just now, but other times. Climate change, race, racial disparities and income inequality. And I think Democrats will govern always with those three things. And that, that's immigration reform. It's a higher minimum wage. It's a tax system, the child tax credit, where low-income people get a better deal from their government instead of tax breaks for the rich. We do tax breaks for, for lower-income working families. We know who the essential workers are. And the pandemic has been the great revealer. It's shown who the essential workers are in this country. They're mostly women. They're disproportionately people of color and they're mostly low paid and they they you know they drive the buses they take care of they they change the linen at the hospital they they work in grocery stores and drug stores they ex are exposed to the virus not making a lot of money then they go home anxious about whether they're exposing their families they have to they have to be at the front of the line this time uh, I want to talk about your book, Desk 88, which is a wonderful history of American politics seen from the vantage point of all the of different senators who've occupied your desk on the on the Senate floor. Some amazing people occupied your desk, and we have some things we need to learn from their uh, experiences. One of them is George McGovern, of course, a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything especially the war in Vietnam when he ran in 1972, but he's also the biggest loser in the modern history of the Democratic Party. He, 72, he carried only Massachusetts in the District of Columbia, and really Nixon beating McGovern in 72 was much worse than Trump beating Hillary, because Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. I know one of the your earliest experience in politics, you were a teenager in 1972, was that you worked on the McGovern campaign. What was your experience? And looking back on that, why do you think McGovern lost so badly? I would I would choose to talk about the the great and the positive things McGovern did, but I'll I'll, I'll try to answer that. I I was a teen. I was 19. I didn't know much about. I mean, I thought McGovern was going to win right up until election day. So it tells you how much I really understood politics. But I mean, because I could see then he was right. He was right on a better tax system. He was right from a progressive viewpoint. Nixon, well, Nixon cheated in the campaign. We know that. Uh, Nixon um, also, you know, he he played to the racial fears. He does some of the things Trump does. Um, he learned in, from, from Wallace's 68 campaign, Nixon, learned how to play to bigotry and race and started something called the Southern Strategy, as you remember. But it's a different time now, so I don't, I don't make that comparison because Nixon won that Trump's going to because I think it's a very, different, a very different country. Last question. Of course, the 2020 presidential election. Everyone I know is full of anxiety about what Trump 
and the Republicans are doing to prevent Democrats from voting, to screw up the count, to undermine and confuse the results. And they're even more worried about what Trump might do after he loses in that period between November and January 20th. Are you at all optimistic we're going to get through that period with our democracy intact? We're going to get through it. He's going to lose and he's going to cry foul play. He may try to, you know, they'll, the Democrats are more likely to vote early. Republicans are more likely to vote election day. The initial numbers may show Trump winning. He's going to declare victory. He's going to say Democrats um, that these votes are all corrupt and rigged and he's going to do all that stuff. And in the end, the Secret Service and the military will remove him from his office if he doesn't move himself by January 20th. I feel that we're going to beat him. I, I'm, I'm concerned about his cheating and his lying. We've never seen a president do anything like this. Nixon at his worst wasn't this. But it means it means two things. It means we've got to really, we've really got to be active, the kind of activists and get every possible vote including those of you that live in states that are clearly going our way or clearly going the other way that that you do all you can with any relatives younger people especially in other states or even in your home state um, and it means that um, we've got to be vigilant but it, it also means vote early that we should vote um, we should vote if you could vote in person early a month before the election like you can in ohio go vote early or send in your absentee ballot and the post office absolutely can handle these ballots I have no doubt is in spite of the the um, idiot that's now running the post office, the political hack. There's no doubt they can the postal service, the workers. I meet with postal workers pretty often. There, there is no doubt they will run this election. This may these mail-in votes the way they need to. I'll give you one set of numbers. Country of 300 million people, right? The postal service handles 400 million pieces of mail per day. 400 million. The most people that would vote absentee would be 150 million over the space of a month. So you've got, they handle 400 million a day. They can sure handle an extra 150 million over a month's period. So Postal Service will do it right. We should vote early uh, and we should be vigilant about Trump's cheating. Sharon Brown, of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio. His new book out in paperback is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's a terrific book. Thank you, Senator Brown. It was a pleasure to be on again. Good to see you again. Thanks, be safe. Maybe the November election will have a big enough vote for Biden so that it can't be challenged in court. Maybe the Republicans won't dispute the outcome, but maybe they will. We have, we've had other disputed elections in our history. Of course, we had the Supreme Court stopping the count in Florida in 2000, and there was another one, much less well-known, the election of 1876. For some comparisons, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about the Civil War era and Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. 
Right. Hello, John. Nice to talk to you. Well, the 1876 election came only 11 years after the end of the Civil War, and the political legacy of the Civil War was still an open question, especially the future of the Southern Republicans, the thousands of black officials who had been elected to state office after black men were given the right to vote by the 15th Amendment and then protected by the occupying forces of the Union Army. Remind us where things stood at the beginning of 1876, in the South and in the North. Well, unfortunately, Reconstruction was waning by 1876. In fact, in that year, there were only three Southern states, uh, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, that was still under the control of the Republican Party and biracial uh, political figures, etc. All the other Southern states were now back under the rule of white supremacist Democrats. Uh, it's worth noting that the parties have sort of uh, exchanged clothes <laughs> over the past <laughs> century and a half. The Democrats were the party of white supremacy back then, the Republicans, the party of Lincoln, emancipation, reconstruction, and black rights. So uh, Re reconstruction was waning, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it still existed in some places. And there were these constitutional amendments on the books meant to protect the civil and political rights of black Americans. So when the votes were counted after the 1876 election, although the Republicans had been in power for, what, 16 years, now the Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden clearly won the popular vote. But I've noticed he did not become president. What happened? That can happen, as we know. Uh, however, I must um, add that Tilden only won the popular vote because there was significant uh, voter suppression, violence, intimidation of black voters in many places of the South. In a fair election, uh, Hayes, Rutherford Hayes, the Republican candidate, would certainly have carried uh, more of the Southern states and more black people would have been allowed to vote. Nonetheless, yes, the return suggested that Tilden had won the popular vote. Uh, it was in dispute exactly who had won the uh, electoral college vote because for those three states that I mentioned, South Carolina, uh, Florida, and Louisiana, both parties claimed to have carried those states. Both claimed to have elected the governor. Two governors were uh, ensconced in each of those states. Uh, each one sent a report of the electoral vote of that state up to Washington. So, both, so the first question was, which of these reports was legitimate? Who had actually carried those states? Now, the Constitution did anticipate disputed elections and established a procedure by which Congress would deal with problems like this. What, was, what did the Founding Fathers say should happen in a disputed election? Uh, I have to disagree with you there, John, which I rarely do. I don't think the Constitution <laughs> is particularly clear about this. Uh, it's, it said what would happen if nobody got a majority of the electoral vote, then the House of Representatives would decide who was president. But in this case, that's not the issue. The issue is which are the legitimate returns? How do you decide who had actually carried uh, these three states? And so Congress went around the Constitution and established something unexpected, or that is to say not anticipated by the founders, an electoral commission of 15 uh, members, five from the House, five from the Senate, five from the Supreme Court. And 
they were supposed to look at the reports from the different states and figure out who had carried those states. And whoever carried those three states was going to have a majority of the Electoral College. Um, it got a little weird because uh, they, basically there were seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and one Justice uh, David uh, Davis of, of Illinois on the Supreme Court who was an independent. Uh, and it was assumed that Davis would basically pick the president because other, the others would vote on a partisan basis. But what happened was the Republicans pulled a fast one in Illinois and they elected Davis to the Senate, right, as all this is going on. And Davis didn't really want to be on the Supreme Court. He wanted to be in the Senate. So he resigned and uh, a Republican of justice was put in his place. And therefore, the Republicans had a eight to seven majority on the Electoral Commission. And by some fluke, all the disputed electoral votes were decided as having going to Hayes, the Republican, by an eight to seven vote. Um, that didn't end the whole problem, though, because you still needed both houses to sort of certify this. And the Democrats said they would refuse. And in the end, it was really settled by behind the scenes negotiations between uh, leaders of the two parties, the so-called bargain of 1877. Uh, where basically the Democrats said, all right, Hayes can become president. And the De Republicans said, all right, the Democrats will now be recognized as controlling the three disputed states. So all the southern states are now uh, under the control of the Democratic Party. And that's often seen as the end of Reconstruction as part of the bargain of 1877. Again, all outside the Constitution. Uh, did anyone uh, consider bringing in the army a military solution to this uh, deadlock? There was a lot of talk of civil war, march on Washington, Tilden or blood, things like this. Uh, this is 11 years, as you pointed out, since the end of the civil war, and people were not that uh, interested in having another war. Uh, so it was all political maneuvering, a lot of rhetoric. Uh, but... Um, you know, it, it, it established a kind of long period of Republican control of the White House, but Democratic control of the entire South. Uh, of course, the, losers, the big... of course, are Black Americans whose constitutional rights were severely limited after this. And did anyone consider what is today's go-to solution, asking the Supreme Court to rule on which delegation to accept, which ballots should be counted, who should be president? Not really. Now, they did put five members of the court on the Electoral Commission, but the court as an institution was not held in high regard at that time. The Dred Scott decision from 1857 had completely discredited the Supreme Court in the eyes of Northerners and African Americans throughout the country. So nobody said, all right, let's just punt this to the Supreme Court, let them figure it out. Now we need to talk about today. Uh, of course, we all remember that Trump told the Proud Boys to stand by. We're talking about uh, violence in past elections. Clearly, he is contemplating bringing out violent young men organized in the present elections. What do you think? <laughs> I'm against it. Um, <laughs> but... Uh... Yeah, there's a lot of talk of that. I read in the New York Times today an article about, uh, I think, Erie County, Pennsylvania, Trump's stronghold, where people are arming themselves. It, 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 not for highly clear reasons, but the, because they think there's going to be some kind of uh, violent end to the election of 2020. Uh, there are certainly these armed uh, white supremacist groups, which the president encourages. 
you know, but even on a slightly less violent level, there's a long history of Republican operatives going to polls, trying to intimidate black voters. You know, uh, William Rehnquist, the ex uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was involved in that sort of thing earlier in his career, trying to, you know, going up to people and telling them, you know, if you vote illegally, it's a felony, you'll be in jail for 20 years, and that ID doesn't look very good to me, you know, trying to get people just to stop uh, and go home. So we'll see. Now, uh, the end result here might be disputed in the end, I don't know, (laughs) like 1876. Of course, in 1876, the, the dispute despite all the violence, ended up in Congress with this Congress establishing this commission. Now it seems that the Trump administration will appeal to the Supreme Court. That seems to be the biggest difference. It's a little complicated. In fact, it's, it's a lot complicated. It's so complicated that no one actually knows what, what might happen. In the 1880s, because of 1876, Congress passed a law to explain what needed to be done if there were disputes. But it's so convoluted that no one can even understand what is supposed to happen. What would happen today, for example, if the Republican-dominated election board of Wisconsin says Trump carried Wisconsin, but the governor, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin says, no, he didn't, actually. Uh, That the Republicans will throw out mail ballots and other ballots and say, look, Trump's got the vote and the, the... the governor will refuse to certify it. Both those things have to happen uh, for Congress to accept the electoral votes of Wisconsin. Um, and there could be lawsuits about the validity of absentee votes and, um, and, and um, mail ballots. You know, one of the things we forget is there have been many disputed elections in American history for the House of Representatives. In the 19th century, there were plenty of congressional hearings about who had won a congressional seat. The loser would charge fraud, would charge violence. Sometimes the apparent winner was thrown out in midterm, and Congress decided the guy who lost actually won. So there was, but there was no procedure. That's determined by the House of Representatives. There is no procedure today about what to happen, what would happen if there were these disputed returns from different states. Uh, you know, the Constitution says the vice president will count the electoral votes. Some people say, well, then Pence can just decide for himself which votes. Uh, he'll take the Republican votes and count them. It's really uncharted waters here. Bush v. Gore was one small, I mean, it had big effects, but the one small issue, should the counting of votes, the recounting of votes in, uh, in Florida continue in some counties but not in others? And the Supreme Court made up a new rule that there has to be sort of equality of counties, you know, but that's not in the Constitution, the equal treatment to counties. And in fact, uh, Justice Scalia said very explicitly, no, the reason we're doing this is to make it clear that Bush, Bush's election ought to be respected by people so that Bush doesn't come in over a, under a cloud of illegitimacy. Uh, that's not really the role of the Supreme Court to make sure the president looks good. Uh, but it could happen again. Uh, although, again, a lot of these are state issues. They're state uh, laws. They're state. Because remember, there's no national voting system in this country. Every state has its own rules about who can vote, how to register, who counts it, who sends it to Washington. So a lot of these things would be determined in state courts, and no one knows who, who, what's the composition of those courts. You'd have to study carefully to see. 
In other words, as in 1876, if there are disputes about who actually carried a state, there's no clear path forward, uh, at, at least from the constitutional point of view. There's no clear path forward. That's why we're hoping Biden will have a big enough vote to avoid a disputed outcome. Eric Foner, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.